Uh, pull out your notes, uh, if you would, in the bulletin. Let me just start off so that you're aware and I'm aware, yes, I have a beard. And uh, evidently, when I grow a beard, people need to know why. Because many people are just like, why? You know, and they're like, are you planning on being Jesus in some kind of a pageant at Easter? Um, you know, is this fear of the beard? Uh, is this the early Sharks playoff beard? Uh, you know, saving money on razors? I don't know. Uh, honestly, um, it just kind of happened. It's just one of those things. I stopped shaving and it grew. Um, it's cool that God lets uh, many men uh, accessorize their face by just drinking milk. And, you know, in a few days, um, you've got hair coming out of your face. Uh, really, it's, it's, uh, it's in part because we have a new men's community group that started this week. And nothing, nothing really seemed more appropriate than to grow a beard. So uh, there it is. Yes, I do know it's there. It's probably not long term. Uh, but uh, And I don't Twitter. So you won't, you won't be able to follow my Twitter page on my beard. You just have to, you know, see each week. Um, Done with that. Enough, enough of the beard. Um, we're talking about marriage this morning. And uh, I am, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm excited, but I also walk forward with fear and trepidation because um, I just, I feel the weight of this morning's topic and, and what's going on and the impact of it. Um, and so we are just going to, we are just going to jump right into it. We're going to start in Genesis. So uh, you can start opening up to Genesis. And as you do, let me just make this statement. Uh, marriage is a struggle. And for those who are married, they're like, duh, we already know that. For those who aren't, some might be, really, that's a shock to me or a surprise. There is much to fight about in marriage. Let me rattle off a couple, see if they hit home at all. Money, children, in-laws, sex, chores. Could I go on? Of course I could. There's 27 million things to fight about, right? And under each one of those, there's little side categories that, that can creep in. But marriage, even though it's a struggle, it must be worth it because people keep getting married. People keep, I don't know if we're the eternal optimists and we all think it's not going to be that way for us. We know it's that way for other people. We've watched our family. We've watched our parents. We've watched you know, those around us. But for us, it's not going to be the case. Um, depending on where you look, it looks like somewhere between 90 and 90 96% of the population will get married. In the U.S., here's according to the CDC, 2 million 77,000 marriages a year, or that works out to about 5,690 marriages per day. So you know the weekends are going to cram more than that, but that's a lot of marriage going on, right? Um, I mean, there's just, it's amazing that it's a struggle, and we know this, and yet it must be worth it because people keep getting married. What we're talking about today is of, of utmost importance, not just to the church, not just to us, although it's of utmost importance to us. But it's really everywhere right now. We're seeing marriage just talked about uh, everywhere in culture. I want to rattle off a couple of things. This is going to be mostly, uh, I think, a challenging and convicting message. But there will be parts that will be uplifting and encouraging. And there will be parts that will be a, a, uh, just a, a bit of a downer. Um, marriages fail. And one of the things we know is that as you just look around, you say, yeah, marriage is, marriage is broken in general as a, as a, as a culture. Uh, let me just rattle off a couple of things. You don't have to write these down. By the way, I put so much in your notes this morning so that you can relax a little bit. I'd, I'd be uh, thrilled if you want to write some things down, but you're not going to miss many of the fill-ins because I, I just put them in there for you. Here's some, here's some reasons why marriages fail. And if your marriage is struggling right now, look and see if any of these ring true. Some is just the fact that there are difficulties that will arise. Much of the time, we don't plan for them, we don't expect them, or we don't think they're coming but the reality is a phone call today could change any of our marriages, right? It would just suddenly put a strain on our marriage uh, that, that, would, that would really, really test it. 
And if you just live long enough, difficulties come. No question about it. So our response to difficulties can drive us together into oneness, or it can drive a wedge between us that we never recover from. That's one of the reasons why marriages fail. Difficulties. And they're all around us. Number two is that there's just a cultural pattern. In fact, many people's dating lives set them up for multiple marriage partners one day. In kind of a Velcro society where you attach yourself, but you know you just it's a ripcord away from, from removing yourself and attaching to someone else. Um, you know, hook up, shack up, break up is how one pastor said our, our culture is kind of landed. And, and, and people who date this way and go from one person to the other to the other, then all of a sudden they want to turn on in marriage the fact that they're going to be in a covenant relationship for a lifetime? I don't think so. So, so there's, a, there's a cultural pattern that, that is driving us toward failing marriage, not successful long-term marriage. Number three is selfishness. The reality is that as you stand before uh, a pastor to get married, um, that there are two problems in the marriage, and it's the bride and the groom. They're both selfish sinners. And when sinners say, I do, uh, there's, there's issues, right? There's just difficulty to, to work through. You can't get around that. Um, and number four is adjustments, uh, inevitable adjustments that happen. Now, again, much of culture doesn't really encourage you to adjust. Much of culture encourages you to hold your ground and let the other person adjust. Married people, how does this work? Terrible. If you're both doing this, it doesn't work if you're both waiting for the other to adjust to you. What we're going to look at is the whole of Christian life is yielding your rights. It's, it's, it's a submission. And we're going to get into all of that. But, but culture doesn't tend to promote you adjusting. And, and if you don't adjust in marriage, you're in a world of hurt from day one. From the moment the ink is dry on your little wedding certificate, there's a world of problems. Um, how many of you came, and you can just think about this out loud, or not out loud, in your head. Uh, I'll think about it out loud. How's that sound? How many of you came from different backgrounds as, as married people? And how many of you didn't realize just how different your backgrounds were until you started to walk down the road of marriage? And you're like, that's how you celebrate Christmas? That's all wrong. Let me show you the right way. Well, it's not really a right way. It's just different backgrounds, right? And then, and then translate that into a hundred other scenarios. There's also differing expectations, differing expectations about the future, differing expectations about spending, different expectations about your expressions of love and how much is too much and what's appropriate and what's not. And catch this. This is where we're going to land this morning. Differing expectations about your role within this relationship. And that's what we're really going to talk about. I started in Genesis. uh, Well, we're going to really start in Genesis 2. Did I say 1? Genesis 2. And uh, we're going to start there because I hope you would understand this, but uh, we teach, believe, and know that, that marriage is not a cultural invention. It's an institution created and designed by God. And as such, it's really a gift because God doesn't give us things. He hasn't caused you to be married to punish you, despite what you may be feeling in the very moment that we're sitting in right now. That's not what it is. Uh, Genesis, uh, really the first part of Genesis here is just God giving. We have God giving breath into Adam in chapter 1. Look at uh, chapter 2 down in verse uh, 15. 
The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. God is giving him a garden. God is giving him a call on his life. God is giving him a mission. And God is giving him parameters to say, do not do not go play in the freeway. You're going to die. That's, that's what's being given in chapter 2 here. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So not only does he give him all these other things, uh, he gives him charge to rule, but then he gives him a helper suitable for him. What is the helper helping him do? The helper, namely woman, is helping him representatively rule the creation that he has, has, has created. And so we see at the very start of, of, the, of the story of God, this, uh, it's, it's built into the creation fabric, in fact, this head-subordinate kind of relationship going on, where God says, man, you're going to be over the earth, over creation. Now, I know I'm going to offend someone in here, but some people don't get this. The, the people that, you know, we used to have church directories growing up, and sometimes, you know, you would, you would not see the people's kids in the picture, but their little dog in a sweater is, is in the picture in the church directory. And these are people that you go, shouldn't your kids be in that picture and not the dog? Um, these are people that may have gotten the creative order a little bit out of whack with their, with their pooch, and they're not quite entirely sure that they're to be over and subduing the earth and creation. This translates into all sorts of weird environmental things sometimes, too. Um, from chapters 1 to 2, we haven't gotten to chapter 3 yet. From chapters 1 and 2, here, let me just say this. What we see in Scripture is this, that heterosexual monogamous covenant relationship is marriage. That's it. That's it defined by God, laid out for us. And in the same way that we wouldn't go and try to, to reinterpret, redefine what a child is now, we, we just look at that and say, no, that's, that's what marriage is. Now, in chapter 3, we're not going to take the time to look at it, but in chapter 3, sin enters the world. And it's done by choice of Adam and Eve. And we'll get to some of that shortly, too. But with sin entering the world, all of a sudden, start to read the Bible from that point on, and here's what you start to, to see. You start to see polygamy, jealousy, adultery. Fast forward to our time, um, TV specials, Jerry Springer, trashy romance novels. I mean, on and on. It really does spin out from this point in time. The fact that marriage is defined by God uh, means that what we're talking about here is so weighty. It's so weighty because it's the most important relationship that many in this room are in and many are anticipating one day being in outside of our relationship with God. And that's the kind of priority that Scripture gives to it. Now, the woman, after sin occurs, the woman begins to rebel against the headship of the man. And the man, either aggressively or passively, begins to either exert or abscond from his leadership-serving role. That's, where, that's what sin does to the head-subordinate relationship within the confines 
of marriage. I hope you remember where we were last week, but uh, last week we talked about spirit-controlled living. What does it look like to live a spirit-controlled life? And we talked about different things, what you delight in, what your time looks like, all these different kinds of, of modes where that comes out. Paul addresses that on kind of a big overarching principle. Remember what it was? It was that we're to submit to one another. There is mutual submission in the Christian life. Now what he does is he goes and he's going to start to specifically lay that out. And it's instructive by his order. He starts in the home. Not just does he start in the home. He starts with the married couple. Then moves on to kids. Then moves outside the home into society. And that's instructive for us. What does it look like? to be possessed by the Holy Spirit, to be following Jesus Christ, and to be a husband, and to be a wife. Is it possible, I think it is, to be possessed by the Spirit, but not be utterly possessed by the Spirit? It's the word sanctification. And we looked earlier about Christ being more and more at home in your heart, more and more dwelling in you. And it's a reality in the moment of conversion, but it's also an ongoing process as Jesus is growing you up into his likeness and the spiritual word, the churchy word, is sanctification for that. Married people, look at me for a minute. Your spouse is the number one tool God is using in your life to sanctify you. We have a saying here at NBC, and it's a philosophy of ours, and that is this, that God's best and first greenhouse for spiritual growth is the home. Most often, we, we, we point this toward parents. And what we're saying to parents, we'll get to this next week, but what we're saying to parents is, God has put you over your parents to instill spiritual nurture and growth. The church will come alongside. The church will help. In many cases where the home's been blown apart, we'll come in and play a bigger role. But that is squarely on your shoulders. But it's not just true for kids. This is true for married people as well. The home is the first and best greenhouse for spiritual growth. And God is using your spouse to sanctify you. And guess what? Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's all roses and fun and you're like, keep sanctifying, Lord, I love it. And other times it's downright difficult. Flip over to Ephesians 5 and that's where we'll be for uh, most of the remainder of the morning. There's a lot of misunderstanding about Ephesians chapter 5. A lot of misunderstanding. And what I realize is many of you are walking in, not many of you, all of you are walking into the room this morning with your, um, with your baggage, good and bad. Some of you have been handed great definitions and great meanings of this, great models of this. And some of this has been so twisted and you've witnessed such horrible twisting of it that it's hard for you uh, even really to, to adjust to what we're going to read without bringing in all kinds of other things that you've lived through. Uh, some people, uh, it's fun to talk about people with, with this passage because um, uh, a lot of times you'll have someone that, that walks up and they'll say, um, uh, oh, Ephesians 5, isn't that that, that, that that passage on submission? Well, right away, they're kind of tipping their hand as to the part they've keyed in on which is submission. And this can be girls or guys. And I'll say, well, yeah, it is, but it's also about respect. And then other people will say, oh, yeah, isn't that that passage where, uh, where you know, you're supposed to love your spouse? I say, yeah, and it's also about um, sacrifice and, and serving. So 
you, you, you kind of begin to sometimes tilt your hand even by, by what you think this passage is about. Because sometimes we can take and lift some, some things out of a passage and key in on just that. I hope this morning will be clarifying for you, and I hope this morning also will be challenging you to go back to the Scriptures and just read with me and just look at the Scriptures. Say, is that really what the Scriptures teach? If it's bumping up against what you think you know to be true or know to be true, let's go back to the Word and just say, is this what the Scriptures are teaching us? And if so, let's adjust to it. Story time. I was living in Colorado. I lived for 10 months in Colorado. I thought I was going to go to school out there and be out there for a while. It turns out that didn't happen. I'm driving home from Colorado. Becky flew out to drive that, that drive back with me. I'm driving a giant U-Haul truck. for I own like five things. I don't know why. I, they, they basically, I went to the U-Haul place, and they said, you know, you can get like, you know, trucker-sized uh, for free. Like, we have nothing but this big size. I'm like, sweet. And so the mirrors were like nine feet out on either side. It was cool. Like, I was just like, yeah. Um, and not only that, but I'm towing my four-wheel drive truck behind it, all four wheels off the ground. So I'm literally as long, I felt like a triple-decker truck. I mean, I was so long. Like, for me, I'm used to driving a single car. But we're driving home from uh, from Colorado. And as we're driving along, um, we, uh, we're, we're, we're cruising along. And, and in that moment, as, as we're driving, um, you, would, you would agree with me that Becky, as she's sitting in the passenger seat of this vehicle, is submitting to my leadership as we drive down the road. Does that make sense? Right? Okay, so she's submitting to, to my driving. Now, she's thrilled she's not driving. She does not want to drive this big truck. She just doesn't. I'm like making friends with the truckers, you know. I'm like doing the whole light thing where once they pass, I'm learning all the rules of the road. I'm like pretending I have a CB radio. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. But Becky, in that moment, Becky is just submitting and I'm leading, right? We didn't talk about that. We didn't say this. I didn't break out scripture and teach that. This is just happening. This is, this is what goes down. Now, let me just give you a tragic scenario. Here's a tragic scenario. If Becky had a habit, for kind of unbeknownst to me and just and just sporadically reaching over and wrestling for control of the vehicle while we're driving down the road. And that's a tragedy, right? If we're driving along and Becky's reaching over, she's just eating a sandwich, and all of a sudden she's like, we're changing lanes, grabbing the wheel. Uh, that's that's a big that's a big tragedy. Uh, eventually here's what's gonna happen. Every single time my 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 wife's hand would move, I would flinch a little bit. I'd tighten up on the steering wheel. My attention would no longer be on the road. It would be, in part, out of the corner of my eye, watching this, this woman. What's she going to do? Is she going to try and grab control at this moment? Is she going to try and like, you know, jam it back into second gear again, out of the blue? What's happening here? And all of a sudden, it's, it's not a, a peaceful, easy feeling. right? We're driving down the road, and it's just not that. That's a picture of marriage for some. Let me tell you an even bigger tragedy. A bigger tragedy is this, and I'll, I'll go from, from less sad to the most sad here. What if as a driver, I decide that my temperature is the most important thing? This is long before dual temperature anything. I mean, we're in a U-Haul truck for Pete's sake. What if I decide that, that, that the temperature of the, of the cab of that vehicle needed to meet my needs, and I never checked in with, with my wife? What if my hunger and my bathroom breaks were all that ever mattered to me? And as we drove along, I didn't give one 
iota of care to what she needed. I just went with what I needed. What if everything on the radio and stereo was just, was just, was just feeding my ears and not meeting her needs? That's sad. What if all the food stops centered on me? What if I was inattentive to what was going on on the journey? What if as I'm driving along, it's March, and so I've got to have my March Madness, and so I've got my iPad hooked up. Of course, we're back in the mid-90s. I don't know how that happened. But I'm watching, I'm watching March Madness while we're driving down the road. That's sad. That's tragic. What if I'm directionless and just driving around? I don't have a destination. I don't have a plan. Becky has no idea when we're stopping next or what's going on. But I'm just driving. What if I'm crashing? Because I'm just not very skilled and I'm not, I'm not willing to take in input. What if mid-trip I climb out of the vehicle and leave while it's driving? You see how this gets increasingly sad? Now, now bring it back to marriage. That's a picture of marriage for many people. And you wonder why people walk into our doors licking their wounds and beat up and hurt. It's because I've just described in kind of a silly story their marriage experience. <clears throat> this morning, uh, I'm going to preach a message that is not overly popular. There are times in history where certain messages are super popular and easy to preach and everyone applauds you and thinks you're the greatest and other seasons where you preach a different message it's all from the scriptures but it's no it's not popular in that day and age let me give you a popular hot message i could talk about right now talking about helping the poor starting a school in a poor country and adoption are things that even madonna would sit in our sanctuary and clap and applaud what's being talked about those are positive messages that our culture says, right on, we're in total agreement. Now, the reality is, if we're doing this gospel-centered and Christ-centered, it's still not a popular message. It really isn't. But in general, those are all safe messages. The one that I'm going to preach today realized that, that through history, at times, has been applauded and a hot topic and a happy culture topic, but not so right in our current context. But God commands me and God commands you to not only live out, but live out with our words at times and commands us to love people with these truths, whether they're hot and common and popular and familiar or unfamiliar, unpopular and seemingly from a different era. God commands us to love by proclaiming truth either way. Who's here this, mer- the, uh, this morning? There are some whose marriages are doing great. There are some whose marriages are at an all-time low. I want you to know I'm sensitive to that, and I have prayerfully uh, walked forward in, in preparing what I want to talk about this morning. Some of you are single, and let me just say this. This has everything to do with you as well. As a single person, who you are right now is informing who you will be as a married person. You don't just suddenly turn on this other thing. You want to know what it is to be a man of God? You want to know what it is to be a woman of God? And a married woman of God, a married man of God, get around people who are walking that walk and look to the scriptures to see what that is. And begin to put it into practice, begin to walk in that path right now. Men and women, uh, and and who they are, and what they are, and what they should be, and what they should be uh, walking in, uh, is clearly laid out in the scriptures for us. The Bible has so much to say on this. I'm not pulling from a few obscure passages this morning. 
And I don't have time to show you all of them, but they're there. What I would challenge you is this. Let what the Bible says be the authority, not what's familiar to your ears. Even if you grew up in the church and think you know where this is going. Let the Bible be the authority and not what's familiar. Very quickly, and this is in your notes so you don't have to write too much down, but uh, here it is. We believe because the Bible teaches that men and women are uh, equal yet distinct. And if you want a big $6 word, it's complementarian. That's the idea behind it, is that men and women complement each other. Uh, Galatians 3.28, in your notes, therefore... Uh, I mean, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor, f- nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That, all that to say there's no distinction among Christians based on your sex. And Jesus Christ, by the way, did more for women and children, which we're going to look at in the next two weeks, than any other person in history, hands down. I got an email, some of you got it too, from a friend of mine, Glenn Miller, about what it is to be a woman in Zimbabwe right now. For starters, your life expectancy is right around 35%. I mean, 35 years old. And on and on it goes from there. I'm talking with someone last night. He said, man, isn't it true? To be a woman in many other countries is a nightmare. There's a billboard in Africa somewhere that says this. Having sex with a virgin doesn't cure you of HIV AIDS. They're communicating this to men because in this, in this African nation, that's being communicated as a way to cure yourself of AIDS. Pure evil. Jesus came along and made this kind of a statement that there's no distinction. There's no classification among Christians. Romans 2.11 says God shows no partiality. We looked at it at length in Ephesians 1. The adoption for a man and a woman is the same. The, the spiritual blessings that you possess are the same as a man and a woman. Do you see how they're equal? And yet we're going to get into the distinctions in a moment. Marriage is also exclusive and there's mutual possessiveness and mutual surrender. Again, I put this in your notes so we could just kind of fly through it. But 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Let's read on. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. (sighs) Okay, okay. Do not... Deprive one another. The roles and life are distinct and complementing. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture right now. And what I want you to do in this room is this. I want you to reserve your yeah buts until the end of the message. Okay? I just want you to listen this morning. And if, you, if, if we all understood this part of the passage, here's what we'd realize. Uh, it's, often like, it's often like two kids coming and saying, it's not fair. And if we really understood what God's asking of us men, we would say this, that is not fair. No way, I got the raw end of the deal. That's not fair, she only has to. And if the women really understood what God was calling you to women, you would be saying, uh, uh, you, you would be saying, saying the same thing. This is what we come with, is, is that's not fair. And we look to the other side. God's going to come and just be God and tell us what's up. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Look at me. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We're going to pause there for a moment. I want to show you a passage from Colossians chapter 3. This is verses 18 and 19. And this is something where he wrote a parallel idea in another letter. And he's got this in, uh, in uh, there's other places in scripture. But this is a great summary for where we're going. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's kind of his super succinct version. And in Ephesians 5 here, he expands it a little bit. I get to preach this message at almost every wedding I do, but here's how I preach it. I read the passage. I rarely, if ever, get to say much of anything about that because it's not time for a big, long sermon. This morning, I finally get to unpack this a little bit and talk about it. Now, let me tell you, it's a great way to preach a message is just to read God's Word. But I can promise you, at most every wedding, and by the way, the couple on your cover, that's a a wedding that I was uh, involved with this summer. Every single wedding that I read this passage, there's almost always someone uh, that, that comes up. It's, you know, it's Uncle Joe, and he's like, hey, good job teaching that submission stuff. And I'm like, Uncle Joe, you don't get it. Like, if that's what you're saying, I, I can almost promise you, you're missing the boat here. And there's almost always someone who comes with, with darts in their eyes and say, how dare you promote what you, what you read up there? I mean, it's a polarizing text and misunderstood. So I preach this message often, but now I get to expound a little bit on it. Wives, submit to your husbands. And by the way, it kind of goes back and forth, but look down at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife. He's talking to the men as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So that's where I get submission and respect in there and tied together. So wives, we're going to start with you. By the way, without exception, when the Bible is talking to wives and husbands, without exception, it starts with the wives. The Bible starts by commanding the wife what to do. Why should that be curious to us if we know our scriptures? Why is that odd to our brain? Huh? Okay, man was made first. Man is called to lead. We just read it. Man is the head of the woman. Why would God start with the woman? Our brain, my brain goes to, you start with the dudes and you say, guys, here's what's up. Here's how it's going to go down. Here's here's the reason. God starts in the scriptures with the women because, women, listen to me. If you are unwilling to be led, I don't care who your husband is. I don't care how great of a leader, how godly of a person he is. You won't be led. If you don't let yourself be led, he he cannot lead you. Does that make sense? I mean, you've sabotaged the thing from the outset. So, So women have to understand at the start. The word submit here, the, the, the Greek word used is hupotasso. And it's used often in military terms, but it's used elsewhere in Scripture as well. And here's what it means, ready? To relinquish one's rights. It really means, literally, if you take it, under the authority of someone else. Placing yourself under authority. 
Someone said it this way, and I like this. Submission, biblically speaking, is voluntarily organizing oneself to fill out a pattern that constitutes a complete whole. Willingly organizing yourself to, to complete the whole. Now, this is a different word than what you use. Look over in one. Children, what's the next word? Obey. Totally different word. Wives are like, phew, good. They got that one right. Here's what that means. You're not to, you're not to obey your husband in that sense. It's a, it's a different idea than that. That means, guys, you're not bossing your wife around like they're your children. And you're just, whatever you say, whatever thing you bark out is somehow supposed to be obeyed by you. A wife submits to her husband when she voluntarily organizes herself so that she can complete her husband. The illustration of a dance has been used here, and, and we've had this Art of Marriage uh, seminar in here, which was really fun, and they had kind of a lot of fun with this whole idea of a man and woman dancing, and the fact that someone has to be leading, and someone has to be following, or the whole thing is kind of a mess. Now, some of you are like, look, I've tried leading, and she's tried following, we're still a mess. That just means you can't dance. Okay, that's okay. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't be married. Um, but, but the reality is, is that's a great picture for that. And you, you say, what would, it, what would it look like if, if neither one would step up and lead? What would it look like if both of them were fighting for control of where to go? It would be, it would be a, a, an utter nightmare. It doesn't mean as we look at a woman in a dancing, a, a man and a woman dancing, that we look at them and say, wow, that one person is way more valuable than the other person in this. We don't see any of that. Imperative, foundational to them dancing is that there is a head subordinate relationship going on there. Now, we don't use that kind of phraseology as we're talking about dancing, but that's really what's going there, what's, what's going on. I'm going to rattle off a few things that, that's, that respectful submission includes. And these are a few things because we're only in this. One is this, that you entrust yourself to God. What is the reason given for us to, uh, to, to submit? It's that God has created these roles. It's that God has told us to do this. And so respectful submission includes entrusting yourself to God. What's the example given? It's the church submitting to Christ, right? As the church submits to Christ, wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, let me throw this off at you. We, we touched on this at the end of last week. But submission to Christ for a church is worshiping Christ. As we submit to Christ and we take our will and we say our will is not what's most important here. The will of Christ is most important. Our desires are not what's most important here. The, the desires of Christ is most important. For us collectively as a church, as we submit to Christ, we're worshiping Christ. You see that? Now watch this little transformation though. As a wife submits to her husband, she's not worshiping her husband. She's worshiping Christ. The, the passage right above what we're talking about, look at verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So a church submitting to Christ is the church worshiping. A, a wife submitting to her husband is a wife worshiping. It's a clear picture of her saying, I entrust myself to you. I'm in love with you, Jesus. And as such, I will do what you've told me to do. Yielding to a husband or loving a wife which we'll get to in a second, guys, is perhaps one of the clearest expressions of worship for your own check of just say, what's re- what am I really worshiping? And for a watching world. And 
person watching kids. Clearest expression of your commitment and love to Christ. Now, we know this um, if you've been with us for any length of time, but marriage points beyond uh, beautiful dresses, sharp-looking tuxedos, and bad DJs, right? It just does. It's more than a legal ceremony. It's more than a symbol of ring. In fact, much like communion that we celebrate or baptism that we'll participate in next week, um, it really is so much more. We had a, a series called Church in HD, and the Bible uses several metaphors for the church. One of them is the, the, the marriage metaphor, that Christ is the groom and the bride is the church. And he says, look down in verse 32, he says that it's a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. And this whole marriage metaphor and what it is, it's weighty and it's big. Those of you who are uh, married and women, here's what I would challenge you with. Don't submit to your husband based on the perceived skill of your husband's leadership. Don't submit based on whether they deserve it or not. That's what I'm saying. What happens is this. Many of us play armchair quarterback if we watch football. Many of us play armchair senator if we're into politics. And what's so easy to do is to look at people who are leading you and know in your heart of hearts that you could do it so much better. You're being lied to. Until you've walked in that leadership position, I don't care if it's your boss the president, or your favorite quarterback, until you've walked in that position, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's prideful, it's sinful, and you need to repent of it. Take that into marriage, and there's an arrogance that comes out of some women that say, I could do it so much better. And that woman has completely missed the boat, and she's being filled with pride. The very sin of Satan and the root of so many other sins. Do you trust in a sovereign God? I mean, that's a yes or no question. Is God sovereign or is he not? If God is sovereign, then the Bible's true. If the Bible's true, then it says this. There's no authority right now in place except by the hand of God. No authority. Sometimes, some seasons, that's really hard to believe. But you say, God, by faith, I'm going to trust that this is true. You ever think you have someone ruling over you that's bad? Just read the Old Testament. They're not coming after you with a knife to your throat. You're doing okay. I mean, it's not that bad yet. Men, here's a, here's a male counterpart that is instructive for wives. Are you demanding, if you're demanding submission anyways, we already have huge issues. But are you worried about your wife's submission to you? and to your leadership, and you quote this passage often, pointing to the fact that you need to submit out of reverence for Christ. And then go on to bash our government leaders. Bash your pastor. Bash your boss. All the leaders in your life, you know better than them. You know what's up more than them. You're not trusting in the sovereignty of God. You're not showing proper uh, submissive respect to your boss. Do you see the male counterpart there a little bit? Some of the guys who have the biggest issue with this are just rebellious and disrespectful and unsubmissive in every other area of life, not even realizing as the head of your house, who's the real head of every house? It's Jesus. That's why we say Lord to him. That's why we call him our senior pastor at the church. 
So you're the head of your home, but it's a little, it's a little H head. It's not Lord. It's not sovereign. So guys, you can, you can actually model this to your wife by how you submit to government, church, work leaders. The Bible says that you're to submit, ladies, respectfully in everything to your husband. Now let me make one qualification to that. The text probably is talking specifically about marriage matters, but the qualification here is this. Your ultimate authority is to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is not your husband. Your husband is not your Savior. He did not die for you to, uh, to impute righteousness to you. It's not who he is. If your husband ever asks you to do or leads you in a direction that is directly contradictory to Scripture, you have an obligation not to follow his leadership in that. You also have an obligation to do so in a respectful way. There's a way to do that submissively and respectfully and godly, seeking reconciliation. And there's a way to say, gotcha, dude. I got a chapter and verse. You're so hosed on this one. I mean, that's a problem. That's the everything qualification, okay? If it contradicts Scripture. I'll say the same thing to the kids next week. Uh, Number two. It, it requires, uh, it involves respectful behavior and attitude. Ephesians 5.33, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me tell you this, if you haven't figured this out already. Men long for respect. When men don't get respect, they tend to respond in ungodly ways. I'm not excusing the men. Trust me, I'm not going to go easy on the men this morning. But when men don't get respect, they respond in ungodly ways. That's, what, that's how they respond. So... When you walk forward, and, and by the way, I, I put in here that it has to be respectful behavior and attitude. Because you can do kind of a, a pharisaical checklist of doing the right things. And if you answer the, the, the test question, yeah, you're doing the right things. You could check off that you do all those. But if you were honest, you'd have to add, but I roll my eyes. But I completely sabotage it after he leaves the room. But in my heart and spirit, I'm not really doing any of that. That's why respectful attitude and behavior. Guys can be dense, but trust me, we're picking up on the attitude. I mean, just like you do with your kids. You, 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 you can kind of see when it's done from the heart and when it's motivated by something else. I don't know who it is in this room necessarily, but I'm going to throw it out there because it happens. There are some women who absolutely emasculate their men in front of their other friends and peers. I don't know if it's mom version 2.0 or what, but it's unhealthy and it's a deep, deep pit. And if you're a woman doing that, you need to stop and repent and not do that ever again. That is a, that is a terrible way to build your marriage. That is, that is ripping your marriage apart. I have seen this in a married situation. As a youth pastor, I've seen this with parents to their kids. And my, my jaw is on the floor. I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I think to myself, man, if this is being done without any kind of check in public, what is this like behind closed doors? I mean, what is this like day in and day out? What is it like for this guy to be around this woman who's constantly emasculating him in every form and function around the kids, around the home? What is it like for this kid to be beat down like this by by big macho dad ripping him apart? If you're doing that, you need to repent. I want to give you a couple of personal illustrations in case you worry. Uh, I always check with my wife. I'm not an idiot. 
I always check with my wife before I share anything up front. I've had people go, how dare you share stories about your family? I go, dude, look, I could buy an illustration book, but let's just, let's just talk life here for a minute. Okay? Here, here it is. Um, here's what respectful behavior and attitude mixed together looks like in a real-life situation. I'm in the process of disciplining one of my kids. And what I'm seeing is up here and on this level. And what really needs to be done is down here, over here. And I'm missing it. I am not seeing it. And for whatever reason, that day I have blinders on and I'm attacking this problem here. Much of the time in our family, we tend to, uh, we, we tend to pull aside and, and rebuke privately to that one child. My wife and I will. But there are many times where you're driving in a car or whatever and you just, you're dealing with stuff right then and there. My wife has a way of doing this where what she can do is with her body language, with her words, with her stance, with her eyes, she is communicating to me, you, you are up here and this is what needs to be done right now. Now, sometimes I miss it or pridefully ignore it and I keep going after it. If I keep going after it up here because I know I'm right, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit convicts me moments later. I'm not one who figures things out in 10 weeks. It usually is seconds. And I come, I come to a place where I go, man, I, I missed that so bad. I was so off base with that. My wife could pull this one. She could come into a closed doors with me and go, hey, dummy. Bad. Women, I just don't recommend that. I don't think that's going to go well for any of you. I really don't. In that moment, my wife displays grace to me, and she shows how she compliments me, and she shows how she, she supports my leadership by gently coming in and now being able to talk more freely, uh, discuss what just went on. And you know what I can do? I can first start by just apologizing to her and say, wow, I've really blown it as a dad today. And then we go to the kid, and we make things right. That is a beautiful picture. And let me tell you, this hap- we do not have the perfect marriage. You know this. You know our, our family. But by the grace of God, I am not just happily married, but thrilled to be married. And this happens on an ongoing, regular basis. You say, Dave, that means you make a lot of mistakes. Amen. <laughs> God's sanctifying me. God's growing me. I'll tell you what would undo this is if she said all the right thing, but by her body language, she was just like, you're so, you're so dense. Why, why can't you figure this out? Why are you like that? I, th- those, those would just strip all the good, all the gospel-elevating moments that can come from this. But she chooses not to. Some of you are saying this this morning, women, but he's not leading me. But he's not leading me. He never comes back and says he's sorry. He never gets the little subtle hints. He's the guy driving without a direction. Let me just say this. We'll get to this in a little bit some more. But encouragement is so very powerful in the mouth of a woman. And what I mean by that is not to come along and say, um, hey, let's, let's, review, let's review the notes here today. Let me tick off every one of the points that you really need to work on. I'm just here to encourage you. I've made a list of 27 things I'd like to start with number one. Not, just not good. Encouragement is so powerful in the mouth of a woman, and so, so are nagging words. 
powerful in the mouth of a woman. What's the opposite of a teammate, of a helper? It's a competitor. The point I'm driving at for women is, are you a helper or are you a competitor to your mate? Are you assisting or are you tearing down? Finally, uh, for the ladies, uh, doing what is right. It's not enough to know this. You have to do it. 1 Peter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, what if he's not leading me? That's true of many men. Even if they do not obey the word, catch this, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, doing what is right out of reverence for the Lord. Stop worrying about what he's not doing. Do what is right. And without a word, you'll win your husband. When they see your, catch this, respectful and pure conduct, not all the knowledge you have, not the latest book you read, but your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the wearing of clothes, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight are very precious. New women in Christ, I want you to concentrate on holiness. As such, you're different than those around you. You will be oddball to those around you. Two quick areas of this. One is in decision making. The biggest question, one of the big questions that comes with, with head subordinate relationship and anything is, yeah, but when it comes to a big decision, what do you do? Here's what you do. In an ideal world, men, you have, you have put aside your, um, your wants, your needs, your right to decide so many times that in this big moment, your wife just says, I trust you. I want you to know, I disagree with you on this. I'm, I'm still going to go either way, but I trust you. And it's your call. You know what? She's right. According to Scripture, that's exactly right. My wife says it this way. Man, I'm glad I don't have the responsibility that you have to stand before God to make this decision for our family. <laughs> what? 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 What'd you just say? <laughs> now, she could use that as a pretty manipulative tool. She doesn't. She just says it straight up. That's true. By the way... My wife would not sit here. My wife's sitting uh, in the third row. She would not be sitting here if I'm blowing smoke up here. This is why we do premarital counseling together. You think she's shy and quiet? No. Liar! I mean, she would be pointing it out if I was if I was up here making this stuff up. Let me let me throw out decision making in our, in our life. Two examples. One is when I left Los Gatos Christian Church, where I had grown up, and I was on staff, and um, and I was loving the ministry I was in. And I got the strong sense that God was calling us to a church that was uh, not in a strong place and, and it was a fixer-upper in a way, so, some of the things. But I felt the Lord calling us to that. And I began to walk with my wife and pray with my wife and talk with my wife. And Becky did not see it that way. She did not see us going there. She did not want to uproot where she was going. I had a choice right then and there. And here's what I started to do. I tell you what, I, I, I didn't watch TV for months or weeks. I'm not sure how long it took. TV was vastly unimportant to me. My prayer life, my being on my knees before the Lord was vastly important. And I prayed over and over, God, if you're calling me to this place, you're calling my wife to this place, could you please let her know? Because I could kind of come in and strong. I know my wife. She, she, she would come with me. I know it. 
I had that one. I, mean, I just, I knew that. But Lord, I don't want it to ever be that way. I don't want the enemy to have any kind of tool that says, yeah, he kind of strong-armed you into this. Would you just make, let, let her know? And he did that. Let me show you how head subordinate works, but mutual submission works. I knew from the time my wife was in junior high, she longed to be an adoptive parent. She wanted to adopt children. At one point in our marriage, I, it dawned on me, wow, that, that really involves me. I'm going to be an adoptive parent if that's true. It took me a while. So we began to, uh, we, we had two boys and then a girl. And um, it's easy to kind of put something out there on the, on the horizon someday, huh? Yeah, we'll, we'll pray about that. All of a sudden, it was time. We had, our, we had our boy and our girl. We had two boys and a girl. And Becky was like, you know, sweetie, it's time to, to pick up adoption. We, we need to do this. I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel we had the funds. I didn't feel capable. I felt fearful. And Becky did what I did. She began to pray. And she began to just say, Lord, I know you've called me to this. My husband's a little dense. He needs, he needs, he needs to know this. And he's, he needs to know it from you. So she began to pray for me. And I finally agreed to go to this all-day uh, adoption seminar. And it was at that seminar, it was a very uh, powerful Saturday for me, where God said, this isn't something you're going along with your wife in. You're leading your family in this. Let's go, dude. Grab the keys. And it was a, it was a massive light bulb. I was like, and I went, I, I went and repented to my wife. So I'm sorry I, this has been your thing. I'm sorry I haven't been leading you in this. I get it now. God told me. And she's like, amen. Like she stopped praying for that at that point. Uh, it happened again when we adopted the second time. And I've asked my wife about this. She said it's okay. She got to a point where she began nagging me, which is so odd because Becky's not a nag. It got to a point where at the dinner table, I didn't want to hear another stat about another country. I didn't want to hear about funding that was available. I did not want to hear things. I began to totally shut down about adoption, and I wanted to adopt again. I really did. And at one point, I had to sit my wife down. I said, Becky, I said, you are not a nag about anything, but you care about this so much. You're so passionate about this that you are, you're going about it in a fleshly way, and I need you to stop because it it's driving me away from adoption. I don't want that. It wasn't done big and yelling. It wasn't like, you know, a big thing. You know what she did? She submitted to that leadership. You know what she did? She returned to prayer. And God worked in it. God moved in my heart. And all of a sudden, I'm like, babe, I'm ready. Lay it on me. Let's, let's hear about this stuff. It's time, to get, it's time to get on with this. Two real examples in decision making. Men, let me just say this. If you're quoting this verse often or ever, you are lording it over your wife, and therefore you are losing. You're lording it. You're, 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 you're doing it the way godless people lead. And therefore, you are losing in your marriage. A second thing is the mouth. Uh, it's interesting that the mouth is specifically referenced here in 1 Peter. Words or lack of them are mentioned. Why? Because it's a common struggle, struggle for women. No question about it. I'm not saying men don't struggle with that, but it's specifically called out here. Proverbs 21.19 is in your notes. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful wife. Does that not land heavy on you? 
Buddy, it's better to pack up and go camping indefinitely in the Sahara than to, than to be with a fretful and quarrelsome wife. Gee, nagging wife or die in the desert. That's a toss-up according to Scripture. I mean, it really leans one way. Check this one out. Proverbs 27, 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. That's waterboarding. I mean, we don't even, some people don't think that's fit for terrorists. And I know that's what it is. Those, those are the same. Those are the same. So, mouth and decision making. You ought to look different than everyone else at work. They ought to look at you and say, girlfriend, you're not standing up for yourself. You ought to. Da, 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 da. How dare he? Da, 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 da. But if you see this lived out biblically, you say, man, you don't, you don't have any idea the, the, the treasure that it is. And that's why I call this message the secret of marriage revealed. It's in plain sight, but it's almost become hidden and secretive. Much of what passes for women's strength is an overcompensation to this. Boys pretending to be men and women reacting against those boys. You look, I just looked on the iTunes top uh, downloaded movies and read some synopsises of various romance category movies. It is so twisted and messed up and convoluted and perverted, it'll blow your mind. And they're comedies. And I admit, there's probably some really funny scenes in there. But the whole picture of marriage is so completely distorted and out of whack. And yet that's what's familiar, and that's what passes as good advice. Proverbs warns plenty about the brash, opinionated, get-what-she-wants woman. Men, listen up if you're not married yet. I don't care if you're 9 years old or 22. Listen to this. In this passage, you will hear the Bible warning you what not to do. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 10. Then a woman came out to meet him. It's talking about kind of a, a dumb guy cruising around, not on mission, not living up to his responsibilities, cruising around. He just came from GameStop. You know, looking at video games, and he's like, what, what should I do now? He's out cruising around. Here he is. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. Sound familiar? I mean, there are women just like this being shoved in front of our faces. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face, she said, and then verses 14 to 20 are kind of a poetic way of her propositioning him for sex. And then verse 22, listen to this for the guy. He followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't dress like that. That's not the point. Here's the point. That brazen, get what you want, assert yourself, because you're a woman and you deserve it, and you aren't going to get it any other way, is the Proverbs 7 woman. It's just that now it might be in a married package. It might be a little bit more of a church-respectful package. But it's the same woman. And the pop stars that are thrown in front of us, the ones that are, uh, some of you are informing and instructing and teaching your kids is the Proverbs 7 woman. Guys, stay away from it. Here's what right, respectful uh, and submissive is not, very quickly, that all women submit to all men. Not what it's saying. 
each one to her own husband. It's also not, not a loss of identity. It's, not, it's also not inferiority. Again, equal but distinct. And it does not ever lead to abuse or feeling used. Quite the opposite. Respectfully submitting, biblically, ought to lead to nurture, a sense of worth, and usefulness. I asked a couple via Facebook to give a testimony up front, and instead of them standing here, I'm going to read it for you. They've been married about eight months. And I thought, you know, I'd like to hear from a couple that is now across the line into marriage. They're eight months in. It hasn't been like two weeks. But we're going to be able to learn something just from listening to them. Listen to this. This is from the wife. Another truth the Lord has revealed to me is that regardless of my emotions and feelings about submission, it is still God's plan for me as a biblical wife. Just because it's hard at one point or I don't feel like submitting to my husband doesn't mean God doesn't intend for me to submit. God's truths are paramount, are a paramount foundation that will never change or fade. Isn't it weird how convoluted and twisted the term submission has become? I think part of the struggle and resentment towards it is either because people don't have a correct understanding of it or they haven't seen it played out in a godly marriage relationship. Being a submissive wife is one way God blesses and protects us women. It's unfortunate that somehow it's become the S word to a lot of people. If you are not submitting in here or respecting wives, let me just throw a couple things out. And we're going to wrap up and split this in two. One might be because you, you haven't been and you're discovering something in here today because of the scriptures. If you haven't been, know that you're in direct contradiction to the revealed God of word, God's word as one of the pillars of marriage. The action from that is to repent and turn from that. Some of you have some conversations to have as a couple on the way home. It just starts with, babe, I'm sorry. I'm realizing some things that I don't measure up to and I need to change. Maybe your response to that is that you can't. My response to you would be, you're absolutely right. You, you and yourself, you cannot do this. We are not wired to submit like this. Your very ability to submit comes from Jesus, and so appeal to your Savior to save you from the desire for control, from the idolatry of the fact that if you were in, in leadership, you wouldn't be fearful. Finally is that you won't. Some are uh, in this room and just said, I won't ever be that. I have a hunch that might be actually what the, what the Bible's teaching, but I won't ever be that person. I'm not sure why you got to that place. Maybe you were hurt. Maybe you were injured. Maybe you've made a pact that you'll never be that. But let me say this to you. You will never experience the kind of oneness God wants to build into every single marriage. It's an imprint of the gospel if you go at it your way. God will never bless that. There are ways to build a church and there are ways to tear down a church. He will never bless the building of this church, if done in a worldly, fleshly way that contradicts his clearly revealed word. Where's the band at? Come on up. I told you to get comfortable. I didn't want you to get that comfortable. We'd be here till 2 o'clock. Uh, here's what's going to happen. Um, this should be a huge motivation for you. 
Uh, next week, the kids are in here, and so I am going to stick with teaching on Ephesians chapter 6, because it's directly to the kids. The week after that, it's been planned for months. A buddy of mine from out of town is going to, is going to teach here. Uh, I will be in town. I can't wait to have him come join us. And he'll be teaching on, um, on slaves and masters from the passage after that. We are not going to get to the guys for several weeks, okay? This, this could be a cool experiment right here, all right? Just a really cool experiment. Women are like, We're, I'm going to study up and give him some of it beforehand. Because No, I'm kidding. Um, you know what it does? It, it compels you to come back. <laughs> the wives are going to make sure the dudes are back in a few weeks. Um, we're gonna, we're, we just need to take a little break, and we'll get, we'll get to the second half of, of this message uh, shortly. Um, let me pray for us, and then uh, we're going to just take our offering up uh, right after I pray. And as a response, we'll take up our offering, and we'll, uh, we'll sing to the Lord. Father, I'm so grateful that you um, have revealed yourself to us as the groom, and that we are your bride. God, it just helps every single one of us as we're entering into marriage and contemplating it, as we look to what it means to be a husband and a wife, you've defined it for us, you've lived it for us. We, we, we say out loud, God, that there is no perfect spouse but Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus, we look to you as what it means to be a groom, a husband who has laid down his life for his bride, the church. We as the church look to you and understand what it means to lovingly and respectfully submit to you as we walk through our covenant relationship. Father, would you prepare the hearts of men and women in this room to set up their marriage, to walk in marriage in such a way that they can celebrate 30, 40, 50 years. That they wouldn't set up their marriages, God, to try out for two to seven years and see if they're a statistic. God, would you show us as a church what it looks like to come around couples who desperately need to be loved through the hurt of their failing and the infection of sin in their life in regards to marriage. God, we love you. We're thankful that you have taught us as your children this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.